Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. If you think about the questions, what questions prompted you to search for a church? What questions prompted you? Maybe there were questions that you had. Maybe it was children. They started asking you questions and you said, I don't know what to say and I don't want to lie. But something at some point in your life drove you to seek after God, to look after what matters, what's important, what are the answers to life's most important questions. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. I'm glad that you are here. Everyone that's here with us, we welcome you. Everyone who is joining online, we welcome you. It's probably because you are looking for answers. We're probably admitting we don't have everything we need. We don't know everything we need to know. And we long to come together and we long to worship God together And so we open our Bibles to learn. We come to God's word humbly. We want him to teach us. That's why we gather together. That's why it's a priority for us to worship. The hearers in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, when they gathered, they had questions. They were waiting. They were waiting for their Messiah. We just celebrated Christmas. Advent, the waiting, and all of their understanding of the one that was promised, the one that would come, it was all heightened because there were so many people that came that were false prophets. And they tried to cause insurrections and they, they managed to get followers after their cause and maybe they had an interesting personality and people would follow them for a while and then they would die. And that would be the end of their movement until somebody else would come along. And they'd say, I'm, I'm the person, you can follow me. And, and they would think, maybe this is Messiah, and there's authority, and there's power, and there's an army, and maybe this is where it's going to be. And then that person would pass off the scene, and they would be left with unfulfilled hopes and dreams. When Jesus walked this earth, the Jewish people were under the oppression of Rome. The Caesar ruled over the Roman Empire And they were carved out a little permission to be Jewish and worship the Jewish God. And they had, you know, some sanction there. And there were different classes. The Sadducees were connected with them. And so they kind of rolled and they had power. But they wanted to see Rome pushed out. And they wanted a Davidic king to come back. And where the Dome of the Rock sits today on Temple Mount, they wanted their temple back. They didn't want to have to listen to any other... Nationality of people, they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And Jesus came. Jesus didn't pander to any of the religious elite. He offered no flattery to anyone. Some of the questions that Jesus' listeners would have been wrestling with about him would have included the following, who are you and where did you get your authority? That's a question they would have been asking. 
He was a descendant of David, and they thought, he's just insignificant. He's not part of any ruling class. He's a nobody from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There, another question that they would have been asking is, are you, are you bringing new teaching? You sound different. Is this something new that we haven't heard before? When we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in the, at the end of chapter 7 in Matthew, the audience, the listeners say that no one's ever taught like this. They were absolutely blown away that, that he speaks with authority, not like these other guys. Jesus wasn't leading an insurrection against Rome. He seemed to not even care that much about who was in political power. And he's asked various questions in his ministry. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or, or should we, you know, be honor God as if that was the only option? Remember what he said? Bring me a coin. Oh, okay, here's a coin. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Remember what Jesus said? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Whose image did Caesar bear? God's. Well, there's a healthy dose of perspective. Another question that his listeners would have been asking that deals with our text today is, are you rejecting the law and the prophets of the Old Testament? And Jesus will begin his sermon with a statement in the negative, do not think, and I have not come. And that's helpful sometimes if you want to illustrate, if you want to teach, you have to sometimes say, well, let me tell you what we're not talking about. We're not talking about this. We're not talking about the other. So now that we have that off the table, this is what we're talking about. And Jesus will do that in the introduction of his sermon. Jesus was bringing teaching that would lead to a complete contrast between God's kingdom and religious works of man self-righteous systems, works-based systems. You can save yourself by what you do. He's drawing a line between those two polar opposites. My aim today in this message, and really every time we come to a sermon, with every sermon, I want you to pray that God will help me. But full disclosure, this is my aim, that you will love Jesus more than you love religious tradition the little math symbol, greater than, that you will love Jesus greater than you love, more than you love religious tradition, and that's hard. That you will love Scripture, that is the Bible, including the Old Testament, more than you love any opinion. Listen, beloved, to love Jesus is absolutely to love his word. You can't separate the two. This is the written word. Jesus is the living word. And so if I say, I love Jesus... There will be time in my life. I will make time. I will prioritize time to be in the word for myself and to be under the word for teaching. I can't say I love Jesus, but I don't have time for his word. It just doesn't head up. That you will love holiness more than you love the ways of this world. And they're all passing away. Love the world. It's passing away, but that you will love holiness, that you will love the church, that you will love your church more than you love self. And that is individualism. 
Understand what Jesus is doing here with this sermon. He's drawing a line in the sand. And with this line in the sand, he's putting his, his followers over here on this side. And he's putting it like a, like a safety net around them. He's surrounding them with, this is my disciple. This is my, these are my disciples. These are those who are not my disciples. And so there's a, there's a divide between them. Kind of like we have a line right down between the carpet seeing him in the church, you know. And I won't divide the sides like you guys are on the right side or maybe it's you and we can... I don't know, cheer back and forth and see who's loudest, but Jesus is separating these groups. And that's a good thing if you're like, yeah, we're with Jesus. And so then you realize, but to be with Jesus means there's persecution coming. He's drawing a line in the sand, and that was familiar to them because Moses did that in the Old Testament. So we go to this mountain and here Jesus delivered an in-depth description of the upside-down life. The person, the, the people who've been born again in God's kingdom. And he opened this sermon with the Beatitudes and he started in the third person, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. And last week's sermon, he narrowed down to the second person and he said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the word. And today he moves into the first person. Today, in the first person, he says, behold, I say to you. So there's, it's like a funnel, and this is the threshold to understand the rest of the sermon from this introduction that we see today in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Follow along there in your Bible. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches otherwise to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, two critical observations from Jesus' introduction here, these four verses that display the, subs the subject and substance of his sermon. It gets to the heart of his sermon. It tells us what he's gonna talk about in the heart of it, the subject and the substance the first observation that we need to make is in verses 17 and 18 that Jesus stood aligned with the Old Testament. And by doing so, he was aligned with true righteousness. Okay, he's drawn a line in the sand and Jesus' introduction puts him, it, it puts him compatible with the Old Testament. He's in line with the Old Testament. Not only was he compatible, but he was also the fulfillment so the question that I can ask you is, what do you stand for? Well, Jesus stood for the Old Testament. He stood for what was true righteousness. So he begins his teaching. He begins this introduction with a corrective, with correction. He starts with the no. Do you like to be cor corrected? I don't. I don't particularly enjoy it. If I decorate in the house, we, we laughed about that. We had an opportunity this week. And Ginger looks at, you know, where I have something situated in the basement. She's like, you really think that looks good? 
She's saying, no, it doesn't look good. I'm like, well, I don't have anything else to put it all on. So until I get something better, it works. But I don't like to hear no. Hey, this would be a good idea, right? No. Hey, this is the right. This is what we should do, right? No. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying we need to have a turnaround here. We need to have a change up. We're going the wrong direction in Judaism. And so he says, no, it's a correction. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. That's two categories that sum up the entire Old Testament. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's already connected his followers to the prophets in verse 12 when he said they were persecuted and you're following in their footsteps. Jesus believed all of the Old Testament, all of it. He affirmed the bookends of the Jewish Old Testament in Luke chapter 11, verse 51. He was teaching and he just makes this passing comment, but it isn't a passing comment. He says in Luke 51, from the blood of Abel, that's in the book of Genesis, all right, first family, first death, Abel died, he was murdered by Cain, his brother, to the blood of Zechariah, that's the last book of the Jewish Old Testament. The order of their books, Zechariah is the final book, and so Jesus is putting a parenthesis around, this is the Old Testament. So long come you know, liberal theologians, and they're like, well, you know, maybe Jonah shouldn't be in the Old Testament. Come on, that's just a fish story. It's just have some meaning out of it. Okay, but then Jesus quoted, he referenced Jonah as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. So the son of man will be in the earth and he will rise again. Why would you ever pivot and connect the resurrection to a fib to a story if it's not true. Jesus wouldn't do that, and he didn't do that. He affirmed, he believed all of the Old Testament. Paul emphasized the entire word of God in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and he says, all scripture, all scripture is inspired, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why, what's the purpose? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I want you to be equipped. You can't get there apart from Scripture, all Scripture. So that's why we at this church will go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, and we take studies and we go back and forth because the Old Testament is part one and the New Testament is part two. Old Testament, Christ concealed. New Testament, he's revealed. You need both parts of that story to understand God's work of redemption. Jesus relied on the sufficiency of the Old Testament. And when he was tempted, he was driven into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. How did Jesus respond to temptation? How do you respond to temptation? Jesus responded three times. It is written, it is written, it is written. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't handle temptation with, I call a million angels. What good would that be for you when you're tempted? Contrary to religious people on the internet, we, we can't command angels to come from Africa to intervene in elections. That actually happened this year by a so-called teacher of scripture. Wow. We use scripture. 
Scripture. It is written. It is written. That's how Jesus defeated the enemy in temptation. Jesus is the main point of the entire Old Testament. And so the writer of Hebrews, the whole book actually emphasizes that Jesus, it's all about Jesus. He takes the Old Testament and shows how Jesus is better and Jesus is greater. He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greater high priest. Jesus is better can sum up a theme of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one and verse one, he says long ago, that's the Old Testament. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And you could say, and sometimes by a donkey and through a burning bush. Many ways. He spoke all kinds of ways in the Old Testament, then verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the New Testament. Whom he appointed, here's where it's all going, heir of all things. It's all to him. But then he says, through him also he created the world. It's through him. So Jesus, it's all through him and for him and to him. It's all about Jesus. If you need to remember anything in what was this sermon about on January 17th, it's all about, what do you think? Jesus, very good, very good. You are smart. I'm not gonna say if you're smarter than the nine o'clock. They might've been a little more awake this morning. But listen, it's all about Jesus. In his first coming, he didn't come to abolish and destroy the law. Think about the Ten Commandments that reveal the goodness of God and our depravity. You ever told a lie? Should I ask you to raise your hand if you've never told a lie? And so we can find out, ha, you lied. What do you call a person who tells a lie? You ever taken something that didn't belong to you? Have you ever gotten upset and angry and used God's name in vain? That's blasphemy. Have you ever looked with coveting? Somebody else had something that you didn't have and you coveted it? We, we didn't even, we skipped right over commandment one, put God first in all things all the time. None of us can keep the law. The law just crushes us. It's like a mirror that says, here's what God is like. Do you see you are not like God? You need a savior. The law shows to us our problem, but it doesn't solve the problem for us. The law is compatible with the gospel. You need the law to reveal I'm condemned. We need the gospel to show that Jesus was condemned in our place so that we can be forgiven. The first five books of the Bible are known as the law, the Torah. Go with me back to Numbers, the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. All right, fourth book of the Bible. And in chapter 16, there's, a, there's turmoil that happens in the congregation. Korah is the chief instigator, and he and Datham and Abiram, they, they come up with this, why, why are we following Moses and Aaron? What makes them so special? And they think, I'm special? Like, what do they have that I don't have? God called them. God appointed them. And so they, they bring about this whole insurrection. They get 250 of the elders of Israel to follow them and join their cause. And the Lord is fed up with this. The Lord is angry with this. Because they can see Moses and they can see Aaron, but they can't see God. So they're attacking God's servants. 
They disobey them. They just, you know, Moses says, come on up in verse 12. And they say, we're not coming up. No. Who do you think you are? We're not listening to you. Verse 16, and Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take a censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. Verse 19, then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Verse 20. Number 16, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Now understand, God has drawn a line in the sand. Okay, where is his line? He's saying, Moses and Aaron, get over here, put the line in the sand, and I'm gonna destroy this congregation that followed after these these men who were going against the plan of God, the will of God, the servants of God. He says, get over here. And Moses and Aaron, they actually say, Lord, bring the line over. Don't destroy these people. Look, Moses and Aaron, and they, verse 22, fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin?" and you will be angry with all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Do you understand what just happened? Moses and Aaron, get over here. I'm gonna destroy the congregation. Moses and Aaron, they basically fall on the line saying, God, have mercy, not because of one man. Don't destroy the whole congregation. And so then the Lord says, okay, I will listen to your prayer, your intercession for these individuals that you love. That's a good shepherd. And then he says, so here's where the line is. It's around those three individuals, their tents, their dwelling place. Give a fair warning for everybody to clear, steer clear, get away from, don't come near those individuals because judgment is coming upon them. Then Moses in verse 25, rose and went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons and their little ones. This is so heartbreaking. This is men. Oh, if we just understand our decisions as fathers and husbands and the implication that, that, that water sheds down on our families. And Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the uh, fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive in the Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all their house, with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and, their, and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive in the shield and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. 
And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. There was a line drawn in the sand, and where you stood that day, it mattered. It mattered for you, and it mattered for your family. Still, they, they, they complain on in this chapter. But go with me to another opportunity in Numbers 21. Numbers 21, there's another time. And if you read, as you read the Old Testament, you're going to see all kinds of times where the people of God just continually, it's like they fell off the wagon of obedience over and over and over again. In Numbers 21, here's the time there's complaining Verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Talking about manna that God provided for them every day. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Remember this, we're gonna get to John chapter three and it comes up again. What was the point? There's a serpent. This is revealed from God. This is his plan. If you're bit by a serpent, you need to look to the serpent, God's provision, and you will live. And it's all pointing to Jesus. Before Moses would die, one book uh, further, Deuteronomy, as he is preparing the people and, and he's delivering these sermons, he loves his brothers, the fellow Israelites, and he's imploring to them. He's pouring his heart out before he passes off the scene. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, he promises them there's a prophet coming. You need to be ready. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, as they have done in our day regarding the election and what's going to happen, and people from all over planet Earth have said, the Lord told me this is what's going to happen, and this is going to happen, and the other's going to happen, and it fills the internet with speculation, people using God's name to say, no, nah, don't pay so much attention to this. Listen to me. I've got a new word. Okay. Well, how do you know if that person is from God or not? 
I'm glad you asked that question. Moses answered it for it. The Lord did through Moses. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word from, that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Hey, listen up. Don't be afraid of that person. Don't change one thing about your life because somebody says, I have a word from the Lord. Show me the verse and show me the chapter and show me the book. I'll listen to you because that is a word from the Lord. All the other fodder, let it pass on. Please don't hit like. Please don't hit share. Let it go the way of all the earth with so many false prophets who have come before and there will be more, right? Follow me, listen to me. Jesus' first coming, back to Matthew 5, was to fulfill the law. That word, pleroo, is to fill up, to make full. And listen, when Jesus fulfilled the law, that would lead to the abolition of so many ceremonies and feasts, along with the distinct national separations. Remember when we studied through Galatians? The Lord's making one people now. And we're indebted to the Jewish people. But your salvation isn't in who your father is or their father, granddaddy, and on up the line. It's in do you have God as father through Jesus, his son. What did Jesus say about him? About himself, John 5, 39. He says, and these are his religious, the people who were against him. He said, you search the scriptures. You really impress people. You got to, you know, now I got a bigger Bible, but that's because my eyes are getting worse and I got to have a big Bible, right? The big old Bible and like, ooh, look at them, that big Bible that they have. He's talking to people like that. Do you have the right translation, brother? Like, come on. Listen to what Jesus says about that kind of a person and that kind of a mentality. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're just like Datham, Korah, you're just like them, Korah. He stood in his tent with his wife, with his children. He stood there. He looked across the line at Moses and Aaron and said, I'm not moving. I've said what I've said, and I'm the man of my house. That's who I am. Yeah, that's right. I'm the man. He should have humbled himself. He should have said, family, let's cross the line right now. Your father is wrong, and I'm sorry. He wouldn't do it. And Jesus says of these listeners, all of these scriptures are pointing to me and you're not willing to come to me. What's in the balance if you don't come to Jesus, if you don't run to Jesus? You don't have life. You don't have everlasting life. When Jesus resurrected from the, from the grave, he met up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they, were, they were so discouraged that resurrection morning, they didn't believe the women saw him alive. We haven't seen him. What are we going to do? All of our hopes are dead. This is a failed mission. Another false Messiah. He's dead. And they're walking. And then Jesus walks up with them. He's like, hey, what's going on? How are we doing? 
oh, Jerusalem, yeah, well, what's, what's happening in Jerusalem? Are you the only person that doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem? Which is funny because he's the only one who, the only one who actually knew everything going on in Jerusalem. Don't you know anything going on in Jerusalem? And listen to what it says in verse 25 of Luke 24. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you know what Jesus did walking with those two disciples on that resurrection day? He said, now back in Genesis, well, this is going to be a long sermon. I mean, if I ever start a sermon that way, all right, this morning, uh, in Genesis, and then moving on to Exodus, and then Leviticus, you're like, oh, man, I'm getting hungry. Where, this is going to be a while. They're traveling, but it's like the journey just went by like that because Jesus is saying all these places, this is me, this is Messiah, this is Messiah, and they stop, and they go, and they say, come on in and eat with us. And Jesus says, no, nah, I'm going to keep going. They say, come on and eat with us. There's nothing open down the way. He says, all right, and he sits and he breaks bread and he gives thanks and their eyes are open and they're like, didn't our hearts burn within us? That's why that was so a great message. It was Jesus and their trip back to Jerusalem wasn't like the one coming out. They ran back. They, they, They hauled to get back there and they get all the way back and they say, he's alive, he's alive. And he gave us this message and he told us, how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, all the law and prophets. The correction. Now the instruction. And you know how we usually go in sermons, right? Most of, most of the time, the first point is like the heavy lifting. It's like laying the groundwork. That's almost how all of my sermon outline goes. Everybody like starts panicking. They're like, uh-oh, we're on A. This letter B is this, instruction. Now he gets to instruction. Here's a yes. Okay, first of all, no, you're wrong. Let me tell you, yes, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. That's why he came. He says, for truly, verse 18, truly, which means sure, means to be firm. It means so be it. It's the word amen, amen, okay? Until uh, just recently, we had Emmanuel Cleaver, the United Methodist minister, former mayor of Kansas City, uh, close a prayer with, a man and a woman. And, he, and since then, he's come out saying, you know, come on, people, settle down. It's not really that big a deal. I was making, you know, just making mention of how many women are now elected to office. That's all I was doing. You can't do that. I don't care who you are. You can't change the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word is so be it. And Jesus here uses this word and he's saying for truly. He's saying so be it. Verily, this is sure. This is settled. This is gonna happen. That's why when preaching and sometimes your heart and your life agrees with something and you respond with when you say amen, which is different than a man and a woman, you say amen, you're saying so be it. If I'm saying Jesus is going to return, then a response is amen. That's right. He's coming back. So be it. Let him come. You hear something that's true and you respond with amen. Now it might be in your heart. It might be, you know, loud. It might be whatever. You know, it's just how the spirit leads you in that. But this is what Jesus is saying. Truly, I say to you, 
Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus held a high view of the Old Testament. He believed in the authority of the scriptures. And uh, do you see what Jesus did? He believes in the authority of the scriptures. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to destroy it. I say to you. Now think about this. If, if I was, you know, arguing a case in the Supreme Court, and I, and I read something out of the Constitution, and I followed it up with, as an attorney, the Constitution says, an article, whatever, and I read it, but I say to you, everybody with common sense behind their eyes in the room would say, oh, what? Who is this guy? Get him out of here. Unless you were the founding father and you penned it, and your signature is on it. Let me tell you what we meant when we wrote it. All this plan that's going on about what you think it meant. I wrote it. Better listen to that person. That's what Jesus is doing. Old Testament, but I say to you, the authority of his word, he believed in the eternality of the scriptures. And when he uses the analogy of the heavens and earth, yeah, the heavens and earth have outlasted a lot of people who have come. They've been born and you've got a baby boy, and you've got a baby girl, and they lived, and they had children and grandchildren, and they died, and generation after generation after generation, and guess what? The sun rose this morning. Clouds go through the sky, and we're still walking the dirt that people walked on for thousands of years. So Jesus, yes, they will be destroyed one day, but he's using them as they're, they're permanent. We're transient. We come and we go and our lives are forever. We're here for a moment and then we're gone. He believed in the inerrancy of the scripture. And he says, not an iota, not a jot, not a tittle. An iota is like a comma in Hebrew. All right, it's important to have the comma. You got to know when to stop and pause. He's saying there's not going to be one iota, not a dot. That's the smallest stroke in Hebrew that distinguishes several pairs of Hebrew letters. And he says, not a jot, not a tittle will pass from the law. Why? He believed in the inerrancy because all in Scripture is inspired by God. And Peter writes, he writes in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's like a ship and there's a sail and the wind comes and the ship has no power of its own and the wind fill, fills the sail and the ship moves through the ocean. He's saying that's how we have the scripture that's here is holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit and it gives to us his word. In Jesus, Messiah, every prophecy of Scripture will be accomplished. Every single word about Jesus, about his kingdom, will come true. Absolutely. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this. He says, the New Testament writers, they recognize that by Jesus' death, certain elements in God's law had been fulfilled in order to be abolished. Okay, so you think about some of the things that were abolished. Did anybody bring a goat to sacrifice today? An ox, a sheep, done. Jesus, okay? So it's not that it wasn't important in the Old Testament. It was all pointing to Jesus and he came. 
the New Testament writers recognize this, that the ceremonial elements in the law was no longer binding to the church. We come, and in a little bit, we're going to remember Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, but there's no animal that gave their life for this because Jesus gave his life. Jesus stood aligned with the Old Testament in true righteousness. This is what he is for. It's what he's always been for, for our redemption. Well, then what did Jesus stand against? And that's our second observation in verses 19 and 20. He stood against hypocrites and false righteousness. He is our righteousness, beloved. He is the sinless one and he was condemned for sinners so that we can be pardoned and set free. So now he gives us some application. He says, therefore, all right, so first of all, I said, no, I didn't come to destroy the law. Yes, I came to fulfill it, every part of it. Therefore, let's make application now. Because it's all about Jesus, do not dismiss or diminish any part of the Old Testament. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, which is his audience, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, they were doing that. The same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? This is a word of warning. To be least in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying you're outside of the kingdom. You have no share in the kingdom. You have no part in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, pay attention, disciples of Jesus, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' enemies were devoted to tradition. They were devoted to rituals, but they were devoid of righteousness and grace. So let me ask you a question. How many times would you go to a restaurant that didn't have any food? I mean, if you showed up, you gave them the order, you pulled around, they took your money, you went to the next window, and they said, have a great day. And you're like, what? Have a great day. And they smile really nice. It's my pleasure. See ya. See you tomorrow. You didn't give me anything. Oh, yeah, we don't have anything in here. It's, it's all gone. You know, we don't, we don't have anything but we'll see you tomorrow. How many days are you going to go back there? You going to try that one again? I'm just going to try it one more time. I'm just going to go back one more time. There's someone listening that needs to really think about how many times are you going to stay going to a church that offers no gospel? They offer you what Jesus stood against and it's works-based righteousness. You have to pray this many times. You have to pray in this direction. You have to do these things. You don't eat these foods in certain times. You do these. You don't do these other. All of these laws, all of these rituals, all of this tradition, but there's no salvation in it. How long are you gonna keep going back there to a well that is dry? That's what Jesus is making in a point and his enemies don't like the point. Like, you're going to shut our business down. We have a career going over here. We got a good thing going. And then comes this guy out of Nazareth, and people are following him, and we don't know what to do about him. It's a word of warning that Jesus gives. It's a promise of blessing. Because those who belong to him, well, they will obey him. They will practice. We'll read the Old Testament. There will be some things we scratch our head at. We're like, I'm not really sure what's going on there. But we won't put ourselves in a seat of judgment over and against God. 
so we won't reduce anything and we won't diminish anything and we will not sit in judgment and say, I, I read this in the Old Testament and, and if God is good, then there's no way that that could have happened. And, and you read that story and that's kind of shocking. And, and if God is good and God is loving, then how can that be true? And I, I just don't think, I, I can't wor- I'm not gonna worship that God. Do you see that perspective is in what Jesus is saying by taking the Old Testament and diminishing it. It's saying God really isn't that holy and great. My opinion, my wisdom, now that's something we, we really need to take note of and think about and examine and praise. So if there's no law, if Jesus came and fulfilled the law, then Aren't his followers just going to do whatever they want to do? And there are some people who think that that is the message of salvation. So you're telling me I just have to pray and I say, you know, God, save me. I trust in Jesus. And then I'm, I'm good to go? Like, I don't even need to go back to church. I don't have to do anything. You're saying I don't have to do anything for my salvation? Is that what you're saying? That's not what Jesus is saying. When he's pushing back against these religious leaders, he's saying, your righteousness cannot save you. You cannot keep the law. But he fulfilled and kept the law in our place and trust in him. And then he gives you a new heart that wants to please the Lord. He changes everything from the inside out so that Paul would write to the Roman church in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Woohoo! no law. I heard the mass message today from pastor. He said, we're not under the law. Well, try that driving down Gratiot on the wrong side. See how that works out for you. The law gives freedom when you stay on your side of the lane. Understanding By no means, verse 2 says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's, he's describing conversion. Remember we talked about that last Sunday? That people will be curious when they see our light shine and the salt, and, and they'll be convicted, and then some will be converted. And their heart will be changed and the heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put inside and they're changed and what they want to do is different than what they used to want to do. It's changed from the inside out. So Jesus closes here in verse 20 with an invitation. He says, furthermore, let me just just take this throttle down, all right? I don't know if you've ever been like water skiing or on a tube or something and, and you're trying to tell the person in the boat like, slow down. And they like, oh, go faster. Like, no. I was like, slow down. I'm dying back here. Here Jesus just takes and just lifts this sermon off the ground. And in this one verse, he exposes completely the false notion that anybody could be righteous enough on their own. Verse 20 says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to happen. This is God in flesh saying, exceeds. You have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were perceived by everybody to be the best of the best. 
I mean, they're like the person with the collar and the suit, and they, they have the look, and they have the degree on the wall, and all the, you know, theological education, and like, is like the ground holy where they walk, you know? Like you're a pastor. It must just like, you know, angels, you know, get you up in the morning and you float in a cloud. And like, that's how they looked at the scribes and the Pharisees. They're like, if anybody's getting to heaven, it's those guys, man. If I could be like those guys and I'll just never be like those. Man, they just know the Bible and it's just, I don't, I don't know the Bible. They're amazing. I'm a loser. And then Jesus says, <clears throat> You've all lost. You can't save yourself. For I tell you, it's one stroke of an introduction. And he says that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is not enough. He didn't say, if you just have the righteousness like them, he didn't say, if you have what they have, you'll be okay. Because then they would have been like, yeah, that's what we were telling you. See, we're, we're amazing. We're amazing. And now he agrees with us. We're, we're amazing. And he's all right too, maybe. He said, you've got to do better than those guys. So the whole crowd is like, oh, I wasn't even keeping up with them. And now all of the scribes and the Pharisees are going, oh, he just said we're not good enough. And we're keeping like hundreds of laws here. I mean, I'm tithing on my parsley. You know how long that took me to, like, one leaf, one to God, two to God, three to God, four, five. I, like, spent hours this week, and then there's mine, you know? And he's telling me that's worthless? That's not sufficient? It's not going to save? It's impossible? He just sunk my ship. This was shocking, they would have said, this, this is impossible then. Their response would have been, well, who can be saved then? There's not hope for any of us. And then he's sitting there. That's why it's an invitation. It's him. He is our hope. Jesus had in mind here the quality of the works, not the quantity. Salvation has always, always, always been a complete work of God's grace. He wasn't saying you need to do more and more and more. He was saying you need different, different given to you. And they knew this, Isaiah 64, 6. See, the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees had was external. But God's always been about the heart, what's inside, the internal. That's what he sees. And whatever is inside of you and me eventually comes out. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In Hebrew, that is a very offensive graphic word. I won't even go into it and describe it. Hebrews, the children of Israel understood that word. It's putrid. You would say it's, it's disgusting, it's gross. The best that we can do in the sight of God who is holy, it doesn't measure up. So let me ask you this question. If you go to eat, you know, a farmer says, hey, come on over, have, have dinner with us, you know, and the family, come on over on a Tuesday night, all right. Now oh, I've got a Zoom meeting Wednesday night. All right, wait, Wednesday night. And you come and they bring the meal from the pile out back behind the cows. 
You know what I'm talking about? And they set that down on the table, all different quantities and in different dishes. You're going to be saying not, can I have some more of this and then the meal will be good? Get more. You're going to say, can we get the meal from somewhere else other than that pile, the stinky pile? Can we get a meal from maybe the grocery store? And even there, I might be a little selective of what you pick out of the grocery store. I'm not asking for more. I'd like something different. That's Jesus' point. When you, when anyone thinks that they can earn their salvation, then they hear this message and they're saying, so he's telling me I got to do more. That's like saying, if we just keep bringing more from the pile, it'll get better. No, it won't get better. It just gets worse and worse. That's works-based righteousness. Earn your salvation. Can't do it. So there's Jesus, and he's looking at his audience And his word is coming out across the audience today and you're hearing an invitation to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't have a shot. Then what's the question? How do we then, how are we saved? If the scribes and Pharisees can't be saved, who can be saved? How then can we be rescued? And where is the answer? It's the one giving the sermon. It's Jesus He's the one saying, it's not by what you do, it's but what I, by what I will do. And now we look back, it's by what he has done. It's always been by grace, through faith. Old Testament, New Testament, they look forward, we look back. By grace, through faith. So then John chapter three and verse 14, Jesus makes this application that should have rung in the ears of his hearers and in their hearts. And he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You remember what was going on when Moses had to do that? People were complaining against Moses. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. How can we have righteousness? It's not our own. It's Christ purchased our righteousness for us, lifted up, that whoever, verse 15 says, believes in him, read it with me, may have eternal life. Beloved, that's the line. Have you believed in Christ? You have eternal life. If you have not believed in Christ, if you're trusting in your own works righteousness, I was baptized, I've taken communion, I've done these things, I've gone through the classes, I've done all these other things. If you're trusting in what you have done, you don't know Christ. You have no share in Christ. To come across the line is to say, all I have is spiritual bankruptcy. I have nothing. And I plead the blood of Jesus. Save me. And you know what he will do? He will save you. And he will give you his righteousness, credited to your account. This is the great invitation to come to him. Martin Luther said it this way and summed it up. He said, what purpose other than this proclamation does scripture have from beginning to end? Messiah, God's son, was to come and through his sacrifice as an innocent lamb of God, bear and remove the sins of the world and thus redeem men from eternal death for eternal salvation. 
for the sake of Messiah, God's Son, Holy Scripture was written. And for His sake, everything that happened took place. Summation of that statement, it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. Your life made in the image of God, there's value intrinsically in you. Today is a Sanctity of Life Sunday. The reason that we believe that life is valuable is because every single human being is made in the image of God, and it does not matter where you come from, what your nationality is, how much you're worth, how tall, how athletic ability, none of that matters ultimately. It's you're made in the image of God, and what have you, how have you responded to his son and his offering of life and forgiveness and righteousness? You can't buy it, but he paid for it with his life. Isn't this good news? It's the greatest news there is. So my question is this. What's your next step? Every week, I ask you this question. What is your next step in responding rightly to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where are you standing today? In Christ or in your own, what you've done and what you've not done? Come to Jesus today. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the salvation that you offer freely in Christ as we prepare our hearts, Lord, to remember your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, the salvation that you offer freely, Lord, and the symbol of, of baptism and in communion are all testimony, testifying to the gospel, Lord. Thank you that you've made a way for sinners. You made a way for me. And you have made a way for anyone, everyone who's listening today, that if anyone does not know you, they will turn from their sin and cry out to you and say, dear God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and save me. I give my heart, I give my life to you. Put their trust in you. May that happen today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're here and you're worshiping, and you have come to faith in Christ today, would you share that with me before you leave? If you're, worshiping, if you're worshiping online, there's a place that you can share that with us. We wanna help you get started right. The righteousness of Christ. Oh, the value of this. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.